Thanks, Laura. Good evening, everyone. My name is Mike. Um, keep your Bible open there at Genesis chapter 12. Uh, we're going to refer to that passage, but um, this sermon is kind of a thematic sermon because we're thinking about Jesus, the King of Promise, as part of this series. And so we are going to kind of make our way through the Bible story. We won't be here all night, I promise that. We're going to keep it really succinct. Um, but I will mention a few kind of passages on the way. We'll look a few up. Um, and if you miss one, that's okay. Come and talk to me afterwards. I'm happy to tell you whatever they were. Um, but let's pray as we sit under God's word. Our Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks and that you are a God who speaks a word of promise. Father, we thank you that all your promises find their fulfilment and their yes in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we pray tonight as we sit under your word of promise, you would help us to see how Jesus is the king of your promises that delivers life eternal. And we pray this in his name. Amen. By 1990, no Australian child will live in poverty. That's uh, Prime Minister Bob Hawke, circa 1987. I think we're a little bit past 1990. I think maybe the poverty issue is still there. Try this one. Uh, there will never be a GST, never ever be a GST in Australia. That's uh, Prime Minister John Howard in 1995. Uh, for those of you that were alive, I think he brought the GST in under his government in 1999. Try this one. Your Telstra technician will be at your place on Wednesday between 9am and 2pm. Uh, that's about 2005. I'm, st I'm still waiting. Uh, how about this one? Dad, if we get a dog, we will walk him every day and we will pick up the poo and we will vacuum up all the hair and wash the dog and clean out the cage. No, Dad, you won't have to do anything. There's nothing like the love between a father and the dog he never wanted. Uh, promises come in all shapes and sizes. Some we ask for in writing, in black and white, signed and sealed with witnesses. Some promises require a deposit. Some require a pinky swear or perhaps, you know, a, a cross your heart and hope to die just to make sure you will deliver. Some promises we just take at face value. I'll see you at church at six. No, I'll put the bins out. Promises are the currency of all relationships. Promises are made and received between people in good faith. Promises kept build trust. That's how society is able to function. That's how you're able to relate with other people just as broken promises erode that trust and wear it away. Promises are the currency of all your relationships. And the God we meet in the Bible is a relational God. He is one who makes promises. He speaks words of promise. In fact, he makes not just one promise, but many promises in his word. And I don't think it would be too much to say that the very foundation of God's character is his life-giving words of promise. His promises, therefore, I think, invite us 
to ask some big questions of him. Firstly, can the word of the Lord be trusted? Secondly, does he deliver on what he promises? And thirdly, what confidence can we have to live by faith in him? Because if God fails even one of his promises, then what good is his word to you or to me? What basis of trust can we have? What confidence can you have about your relationship with him? Maybe he's got his fingers crossed behind his back. It's all one big trick. Or on what basis can you live in hope now for any future that he has promised you? So tonight we're going to look at the foundation of God's character, the foundation of our relationship to him in his words of promise. Just two points tonight. Uh, Promised future, God's promised future, and the second one, promises delivered. Here's our first point. Promised future, and this is from our passage here in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3. These are perhaps... Um, the most well-known kind of foundational promises of the Bible, and really, it's these promises to Abram that set the program for the story of the Bible here and onwards. uh, God promises to Abram a land, he promises him a great nation, he promises him a great name, and he promises him a great blessing. Not just for Abram, but that all the people on earth will be blessed through him. Uh, A little bit later on, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of many, to reflect this promise that God makes to him. Now, this is a huge contrast to the story of uh, Babel that we read in Genesis chapter 11, just the chapter before, where we see a great number of people, a great nation of people, all speaking one language, gather themselves on the plains of Shinar, which is over near Babylon. And there, they try to make a great name for themselves by building a tower up to the heavens. That's what Babel means. It means the gateway to God. We, we can't get God to come down here, so we'll go up to him and make ourselves gods. But of course, there's a bit of a joke there. Babel also sounds a little bit like the Hebrew word for uh, Babil, which is confused. So they, they think they're building a gateway to heaven, but really they're just confused. And in fact, this is like all human projects. In fact, this story, the Tower of Babel, kind of becomes the one story that defines every human project from here on in. Human projects that promise much, but really deliver very little. Because the Tower of Babel doesn't end with making human beings gods. It ends with a scattering, and it ends with division and with disappointments. Every human project, whether it's systems of government, whether it's new technology that promises to revolutionise your life and your world, whether it's environmental or trade agreements between nations and governments and their people, they all promise much. But all too often, time and time again, we see them fail to deliver. God's promise to Abraham, on the other hand, starts to come to fruition despite human weaknesses. And against all odds, it would seem. Abraham, at the age of 100, has his own biological heir, his son Isaac. 
And then his son Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob has 12 sons, both that become huge nations, Esau and Jacob. We've been kind of covering this story here at church in Genesis uh, the last few weeks. But what we see all the way through that story is how God reaffirms his promise, not just to Abraham, but to his son Isaac, and then to Isaac's son Jacob. And through the passage of time, we see the family line of Abraham become a great and mighty nation that God rescues from Egypt, the Exodus story, and plants in the promised land of Canaan. And it's not just Abraham and his family, but we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, that many other people went up with the Israelites besides. Many other people seeing the the powerful signs and wonders that God performed in Egypt join in with God's people, the Hebrews, and exit Egypt to become this great blessing, to take part in the great blessing that God has given to Abram. And so what do we see? We're only up to kind of Exodus so far, but we see a land given to God's people. We see Abraham's descendants become a great nation. We see him have a great name. And we also see how Abraham and his descendants become a great blessing to all people on earth. And on the journey to establishing the nation of Israel in the promised land, God decides to make even more promises, even greater promises, as if it is too small a thing for God just to bless Abraham and his family line, he goes another step further. So in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises King David, he's the, the second king of Israel, that he will make David's name great detecting a a bit of a theme here, right? Like the names of the greatest men on earth. God promises that David's family line and kingdom will last forever. It'll be an eternal kingdom. And that David's son will also be an eternal king, a king forever. And God himself will call David's son, that king, he will call him his own son. And that king will call God his own father. So the high point arrives in the reign of Solomon, king of Israel, the third king of Israel and son of David. So this is 1 Kings chapter 10. And what we see in that chapter is the whole world seems to flock to Israel to hear God's words of wisdom given to Solomon and proclaimed proclaimed to the nations. God's people, we see, living in God's place and living under God's rule, under his word. We're only halfway through the story. There's a lot more books to come in the Bible, but by 1 Kings chapter 10, what can we ask of God? Does God deliver on his promises? Time and time again, yes, Can God's word be trusted time and time again? Yes. And can you have confidence to live by faith in him and his words of promise? Yes, absolutely. But there is just a couple of small problems. And the problem is that all of this seems to unravel fairly quickly 
after this point in Israel's history. There's been some kind of cracks along the way in the disobedience of his people. Just go back and kind of read Judges if you want a bit of an insight into that. It's R-rated, so for you juniors out there, you can read it in uh, rebellion to your parents and the, the rating code. But Judges, right? All the cracks seem to be appearing there. But the great nation of God's people, which seems to be prospering under King Solomon, all of a sudden turn to rejecting God and his word. They turn away from him. And what we see happen time and time again is that God's people, all people in fact, have a heart problem. Right? They have God's word. They actually have God's presence with him, with them. Right? He dwells with them in the tabernacle which goes with them wherever they go and in the Ark of the Covenant. They know his presence in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. They experience the benefits of his fulfilled promises. But they forget his faithfulness. And their hearts become captivated by foreign gods and, and other promises of life. And so for all God's steadfast faithfulness to his word, his people are unable to respond in kind. And what kind of relationship can sustain that kind of imbalance where one remains faithful but the other will not do so? And it's not just a heart problem for God's people, but we also see that the son of David promised an eternal throne who will be king forever, what happens to him? Well, Solomon dies and he goes to be buried with his father David and his ancestors. There's a death problem here as well. And the kingdom Solomon leaves behind is a divided kingdom that descends through a line of mostly incompetent and corrupt and idolatrous and unjust heirs with, with very few exceptions. But with no exceptions... Every single one of them, every heir of David, also dies. And God's promised eternal kingdom almost altogether vanishes from under the sun as time and time again they are invaded by successive empires. Babylon, then the Medes and Persians, then the Greeks and Macedonians and finally the Romans. So what now can be said of God's promises. Right? God's people have rejected him, exiled from his place. There is no eternal king, there's no eternal kingdom, let alone any king who can behave in a way that is fitting to be called the son of God or even to call God their father. Now, God might have kept his side of the bargain. Right? He might have remained faithful to his side of the promises. But how has he in any way accomplished what he said? Where is God's people living in God's place, living happily under his rule? See, for all the good intentions that God has here, they are no substitute for actually keeping your promise and fulfilling what you said you would do. Right? This isn't city rail, this isn't state transit. You can't just say, well, you know, I intended to turn up at the bus stop on the time that it said there, but, ugh, you know, there's traffic, mechanical failure, there's an industrial action, all these things out of my control, I couldn't do it. Now, it doesn't matter if the circumstances are out of your control, it's up to you then not to promise things that you can't deliver on. 
And if you do make the promise, it is also up to you to keep it. Otherwise, don't make it. And so how can God overcome these two big problems? He is faithful, but we are unfaithful. We have a heart problem, and more than that, we have a death problem. And so how can God overcome that in order to truly deliver on his promises? Here's our second point, promises delivered. Now, rather than shy away from his promises or perhaps maybe throw up his hands and let us all kind of suffer under our own consequences and failures and problems, God doesn't kind of pull back on his promises. He leans right into it and makes even more. So I want to point out to you two passages. We're going to look them up. And these are the kinds of passages that you should memorise where they are and you should totally underline them or highlight them in your Bible. The first one is Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31. That's an easy one to remember, 31, 31. Uh, And if you hit Psalms in the middle of your Bible, go forward to kind of Isaiah, Jeremiah, 31 comes after 30, comes before 32. You know how numbers work. This is a great promise that God adds on top of all his other promises. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Again, God making promises that he will overcome the heart problem that all people face. Here's the second passage I want you to look up. It's Ezekiel. It's the next book over. I've kept them nice and tight together. Again, remember this one, Ezekiel 36 and verse 22. doesn't quite have the same you know, rhyme as the Jeremiah one, but Ezekiel 36. Underline this one, draw a border around it. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 28. 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the Israelites, Ezekiel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then, then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Can you see how God's name has been profaned among the nations? Because although he's kept his promises, he hasn't brought his people to be uh, his nation in his land under his rule. And God's name is ridiculed because of it. And so God is going to bring honour back to his name. He's going to demonstrate his faithfulness by doing what we ourselves cannot do. He's going to make a new covenant of promise and he's going to keep both sides of the deal. That seems a little bit odd and no one seems to really understand how God is going to do this until that is, Jesus is born one Christmas morning. Now, I think the Christmas story is perhaps the most widely known story of the Bible in popular culture. Um, As you turn on the TV this Christmas, you might see the little drummer boy and you might see a whole bunch of stop-motion animations or cartoons or Disney or something, but everyone kind of knows the basic gist. You've got the Virgin Mary, she goes to Bethlehem, not on a donkey, by the way. There's no donkey in the Bible version. I mean, she could have ridden side saddle on a stallion, we don't know. But she has birth, she gives birth and lays her baby in an animal feeding trough, a manger. And then some wise men from the east come and they give him gifts. Right? People kind of know the general contours. But no one seems to really bother with repeating or telling the genealogy which you find at the start of the Christmas story in Matthew's Gospel or in Luke chapter 3. You know, I, I get it. There's a, there's a lot of weird names in there, hard to pronounce, Jehoiakim, Abinadab, who are those people anyway? I mean, are they really relevant to what's going on here? But I do want to let you know those names are important. The ancestry of Jesus is really important because it turns out that there are, very two, there are two very key and important ancestors of Jesus. One being Abraham, which we just heard God make those initial promises to in Genesis chapter 12. And the other ancestor of Jesus is King David, who again we heard God make promises to in 2 Samuel 7. You know their names. You know that these are the key people that God has made a promise of blessing, of an eternal kingdom and an eternal king and son. And so it is no small thing to know who Jesus is related to. It is no small thing that Jesus is also born of a woman and a human like you and me. And yet he's able to do what we cannot do. He is able to love the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul, with all his mind and with all his strength when our hearts just keep turning away to other bright, shiny things. Jesus, it turns out, is God in the flesh keeping both sides of the deal in God's covenant of promise. Jesus is here to fix our heart problem. And it's no small thing that he not only comes as God's King, his Christ, his Messiah, to proclaim the good news that the Kingdom of God is at hand, 
but that he is also God's one and only beloved son. And the kingdom of the son that Jesus comes to announce truly is good news. Because this is a kingdom where the demonised are set free. Where sins are forgiven. Where the blind see and the lame walk. Where the poor rejoice. This is a kingdom where even the dead are raised. And as Jesus moves about, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, we see people's hearts transformed and changed from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh as people repent and believe in the promises that God has made in the past, as they see them fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus, it turns out, is the king of promise and he is the fulfilment of all of God's promises. And he is God's word of promise come in the flesh. As Jesus himself says, he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. As the Apostle Paul says, all God's promises find their yes in Christ Jesus. But again, we should ask the question, does Jesus really deliver on God's promises? Because you know how people's hearts are transformed and they repent and believe? Uh, Even the hearts of his own disciples who have left everything to follow him? Well, it turns out their hearts are still just fickle and fragile. Right? Even they desert him, their great teacher and Messiah, as he heads to the cross. And remember all those people that have been forgiven their sins? And those lame who now walk and the blind who see and the poor who rejoice, even the dead who are raised like Lazarus and the sick little girl, what happens to them? Well, they still die. And what's the point of that? What, you know, Jesus came to heal and forgive and raise the dead, what, just so you could die a little bit later? That doesn't seem to make much sense. And I wonder about that paralysed man that Jesus healed, you know, the one lowered down through the roof. I wonder what happened to him. Now that he could walk and run and leap for joy, did he run out in front of a chariot? Did he die that way? And you think maybe it would have been better if he stayed lame. What kind of miracle is that? I mean, it looked impressive at the moment, but it didn't turn out great in the end. And people's hearts, what, are they just turned back to God so that we can go wayward again? Are we just seeing the Old Testament story over and again, Jesus? I mean, how does Jesus actually deliver on God's promises to fix our heart problem and our death problem? Well, the astonishing answer is that Jesus accomplishes all of this in his own resurrection from the dead. That is a resurrection from the dead that proclaims him as Lord, as Saviour, and to never die again. Last passage to flick to is in Romans chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Again, another good part in your Bible to kind of underline and highlight and remember where it is, because here is a great summary of the Gospel. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, This is the Gospel that he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. 
And we've just seen some of those prophets, uh, some of those promises in the Old Testament. What are they about? Well, they're about his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the Spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Who is Jesus? He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, this is where all the promises of God come together. Where they all intersect, they land on Jesus as he delivers fully and finally on God's promises. He is God's eternal king and son. He establishes God's eternal kingdom where God's people dwell with new hearts and enjoy new life here and now and, of course, for eternity. Where we are made children of God the Father with Jesus the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, where else in this world can you turn to find that kind of assurance? Not just empty words, but backed up in the resurrection of a human being from the dead, exalted to the right hand of the Father. Where else can you find a relationship with such steadfast faithfulness that doesn't give up, that always keeps its word? And what other word can you trust to deliver you the promise of life that you crave and that you need? Because, you know, there are lots of things in this world that promise life. You know, as you're watching the cricket this summer, no doubt you'll watch approximately 325 ads on gambling per minute. And maybe that's where you'll find life. It looks like life, looks like fun, gamble with your mates, it's how you bond together, right? Lose a bit of money, it's a great time, we can tell stories for years. Maybe you'll find life in just kind of drinking Coke, maybe Coke Zero, there's fun times to be had there. Red Bull gives you wings. Maybe you'll find life by drinking alcohol because silly stuff happens when you relax and you're drinking a few beers and stuff happens and those memories and that bonding, you'll find life and good times. Keep walking, Johnny Walker, all that kind of stuff. Maybe you'll find life actually in a really enviable Instagram account with lots of likes, lots of clicks, and you can look at yourself on your own Instagram page and think, whoa, I look good. Other people think I look good. Maybe you think you'll find life in high marks at school or maybe a university education. Maybe you think you'll find life in a high-paying job or owning Sydney property, Sydney property, having a car, an electric car, even a Tesla. Or a few motorbikes, isn't that the dream? You see, whatever it is that you imagine will deliver you life, whatever it is that you turn to for security, when you feel like the whole world is is falling apart, whatever that thing is that you hope will cure your ills and deliver you life, I want you to ask the same question of that, that we ask of God and his promises. And the question is, does it deliver? Will this thing deliver you life 
or for all the good intentions in the world, will it actually let you get, let you down? Because it turns out, you know, for all the, the good times in the ads about betting with your mates, do you know what the, uh, do you know what, how much Australians gamble each year as a whole? This is us working together, mateship at its best. How much do we gamble a year? Have you seen the number in the, the news lately? 24.9 billion with a B, right? 170,000 adults with a serious gambling addiction. That's kind of, you know, people that are living now destitute because they've given away their money and their whole family's fallen apart. Or what about drinking Coke, Red Bull, alcohol, whether it's sugary or whatever? Promises life. We've also seen kind of an increase in diabetes and heart disease in this country. Not only that, do you know how many alcohol-related deaths there were last year in Australia? 1,559. And even more shocking statistic, 1,156 of that number were men. Men have a problem with dying from drinking alcohol. Hold my beer and watch me die, I think is how the saying goes. And the enviable Instagram that promises so much love and adoration and life, Think about all the body image issues that we have in our society. All the high marks at school, the uni education, the constant pressure for you to secure your own future. We've seen an increase in anxiety and depression. And what about the high paying job and the Sydney property and the car? Do you know what the number, <laughs> the, the cost of financial um, personal debt is in Australia? I've been having fun Googling all these, right? How much personal debt are we in as Australians? Two trillion dollars. I don't even know how many zeros that is. I just know it's a lot, right? It's like $250,000 per person. That's how much personal debt we're in. It, it looks like life, doesn't it? It turns out that rather than giving life, those things that promise it actually steal it away. They hold this bright, shiny thing up here, look like this, do this. There's fun times and life to be had here while they reach around into your back pocket and pull your wallet out. While they rob you of your security and your self-esteem. I want you to ask all those things that you trust in that one question. Will it deliver you life or will it take it away? And you know what? Jesus invites you to ask the same questions of him. Right? Can you trust the word of the Lord? Yes. Does he deliver on his promises? Will he give you life or will he take it away? And what confidence can we have to live by faith in him? Jesus invites you to ask those questions because he's got some good answers for you. Yes, he can be trusted. Yes, he delivers on his promises. And yes, you can have absolute confidence and assurance to live by faith in him. And that's because all these answers, all the things you're looking for, the answers to those questions, come together in Jesus, the King of promise, who delivers life eternal. I'm going to finish with just uh, reading again some of the verses that we heard in our first Bible reading. These are from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 and 40, and one verse from 12. 
the writer of Hebrews says, these, or these examples of faith, were all commended for their faith and yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Together with us who know the Lord Jesus and who have seen the promises fulfilled. So therefore, chapter 12, verse 2, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that all your promises find yes, find their yes in the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that your word can be trusted. We thank you that you do deliver on your promise of life eternal and that we can have absolute confidence to live by faith in you. Father, turn, turn our eyes away from worthless things that we might fix our eyes on Jesus and know life and hope in his name. Amen.